Well, good morning. Once again, please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We've arrived today at Peter's second speech in the book of Acts. The first of his so-called missionary speeches and one of the longest speeches. And we find it on the heels of what we as readers of the Gospels, particularly since the ministry of John the Baptist have been waiting for the incredible intrusion of heaven into earth that is the outpouring, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Now, in terms of preaching, we have to break this up into three sermons, right? Because I just can't preach this entire sermon in one sermon. And so that brings with it its own set of difficulties, but that is my problem, not yours. Having said that, the main point of the text that we've already heard read is right there on the screen. The climactic indication that the last days have been inaugurated is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who enables and empowers God's plan of salvation. A little bit longer, but very important. The climactic indication, not the only, the climactic indication that the last days have been inaugurated is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who enables and empowers God's plan of salvation. And so shortly after the installation of Matthias to uh, restore the twelve, the camera zooms in on what appears to be the 120 or so folks that are mentioned in chapter 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So here we are in Pentecost, also called the Feast of Harvest, also called the Feast of Weeks. It was one of three pilgrimage festivals where people would come to, uh, Jews, excuse me, would come to Jerusalem from all over. It took place 50 days from Passover, and it says that they're all together. It's very unlikely that they're all together in the same upper room that we see in chapter 1 that the disciples return to after being on the Mount of Olives. But nevertheless, they are all together in one place, and it's going to say a house. They're all actually together in one house. And as they are sitting there, they're sitting there in the house, suddenly, unexpectedly, heaven intrudes. Heaven invades in a, an indescribably magnificent way. We read that, and suddenly there came from heaven, so here's the heaven heavenly intrusion, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So let me just, just to give you an idea of what this must have been like, I, I spent the night at someone's house once who lived right next to the airport. And when I say right next to the airport, I literally am like right next to the airport, and I had slept in, and um, I was awakened from sleep by like a jumbo jet flying over the house to land on the runway, and it was so loud that I woke up and I thought it was the second coming of Jesus. I woke up and thought, this is it! Like, I'm here for it! And I was like, ah, ah, ah. I was like, oh, it was an airplane was very disappointed, but that kind of startling noise was something like this. This was the very power of God. 
This is the very power of God that suddenly came about. It says there was this sound like a mighty wind, not to be confused with an actual wind. It didn't say a hurricane was going on in the house. There was a sound as the, like a sound that would be created by wind. And as I'm sure, as everyone's looking around wide-eyed like, oh, I don't know what's happening, but something's about to happen. It's happening now. These little bits of fire, um, and, and again, not to be confused with a floating version of what you can make in your fireplace. That's not it. It's an analogy. As of fire, like think more like burning bush fire is what I would say. These little bits of what appears to be fire, this divine fire, you might say, uh, uh, are, are produced, and everyone can see them over everyone else's head, and everyone presumably has one over their head. That's if we understand that to say that it came and rested over them. And so with this noise and these visuals that, that other places in Scripture indicate the presence of God, this would have been a sensory overload. Total sensory overload if you are in this house. My goodness, what an experience. And in the midst of these things happening around them, something happens in them. In the midst of things happening around them, something happens in them. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, now, now we have all of the elements that we expected from the preaching of John the Baptist. Remember, Luke chapter, look out, Luke, Luke records it in chapter 3, verses 15 and 17. As the people were in expectation, they were all questioning John whether he was the Christ. And John answered them saying, I baptize you with water. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am uh, not worthy to tie, to untie, excuse me. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. You notice that piece of judgment there that I included in that quote because we're going to come back to it in this very text. And so it is the ascended Christ who both, as we'll see next week, receives the Spirit and then pours out the Spirit. He pours out the Spirit. Now, I want to be very clear. This does not mean that the Holy Spirit has never acted in redemptive history before, that He wasn't active, that He hasn't filled people before. That's not it. Jesus even tells His disciples, uh, He is with you, but He will be in you. Now, what's the difference between Him being with you and in you? Exactly. I'm not entirely sure. I don't know the metaphysics of indwelling. Okay? But clearly, what is happening here? is something that is unprecedented. It is something that, that, that is unlike what has come before. To whatever extent the Holy Spirit has filled people and been with people before in redemptive history, and there are plenty of examples of it, we'll even see a few later, this is something different. And it is the effect that it produces from these men and these women is speaking in other tongues, the phenomenon called xenolalia. Xenolalia, this is uh, as opposed to glossolalia, which would be like ecstatic utterances that no one can understand. Xenolalia, as the story will uh, clarify, is speaking in unlearned languages. Speaking in languages that are, you might say, human languages, but they are not known by the person speaking them. And so that's what happens. The Spirit, it says, gives them utterance gives them the ability to do this, and all we can do 
All we can do is sit there and marvel and listen for further explanation. Apparently, just like the large group of folks who come out of the woodwork to see what on earth is going on. The response of the multitude here is just fascinating. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Okay, this would have included Jews who had come back from the diaspora, the dispersion, and those who were visiting because it was Pentecost. They had pilgrimage there to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And I think here is where we get the why question. And I hadn't really thought about it before this week. It's like, why did the Spirit fall on Pentecost? We just associate the two. Someone says Pentecost, they just, oh, that's from the Spirit. But why? Why not a week later? Same Spirit falls, speaking in tongues, all of it. I mean, why not a, why not a, why a week later? Why is it that God decided to pour out the Holy Spirit, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost? There are a couple very compelling suggestions, but the only one that Luke seems to explicitly point out is that there were people here from every nation under heaven. This, In other words, after Passover, this was the first opportunity where people would be coming from everywhere. They would be coming from everywhere, from different countries and places. They would all be in Jerusalem. What a time to show the power and promises of God in the providence of God. So the Spirit falls on Pentecost. And so all of these Jews and some non-Jews, some proselytes, a Gentile who had been circumcised, kind of functionally became a Jew, they hear this commotion. They hear this commotion. They wonder what on earth is going on. Verse 6, at this sound, the multitude, they came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans. Now, brothers, this is, I have, I've got to be honest. When I read this passage, I have questions. Oh, I've got so many questions. You know, uh, how loud were they speaking? Okay, how loud were they speaking? Had they gone out in the street? You know, had they gone out in, in the street? Did they, did they speak at the same time or did they take turns? Were they having individual conversations or were they taking turns announcing to the multitude? How exactly did it work? And we're not given any details about that. All we know is that at a certain time, they end up outside of the house. They end up outside of the house and there's a multitude gathered because that's who Peter is going to address. Okay, but we're not told when they move out of the house. We're not, we're not given any details exactly how the assembly happened and all the rest of it. Regardless, however, these folks are bewildered. They're astonished, most of them. They're amazed because they are hearing these Galileans speak, and the Greek is very clear, in their native tongue, in their mother tongue, where they were born. Not, not, not like what you would expect at all. But the second astonishment is that it's Galileans doing it. Now, Galileans were not esteemed to be, you might say, particularly sharp people. Okay? Bottom line. They were not esteemed to be particularly sharp or educated. Be like a redneck dude who starts speaking French. They're like, 
That was very unexpected, okay? So not only are they hearing their native tongue, but they're hearing it from people who honestly, it's kind of shocking that, you know, that they would speak such, uh, you know, that kind of language anyways. So they're amazed and they cannot explain what they are going on. Listen to what they say. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them, and here's what they hear them saying. The tongues, right? What are they saying? We hear them telling in our own tongue, our native tongue, the mighty works of God. Everyone hears in their own native language them speaking the mighty works of God. And what we are going to see, I mean, chapter 1 and the rest of the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ, but also the rest of this chapter clarifies, the mighty works of God is not merely the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. This is the climactic cap. But the mighty works of God that are going to be proclaimed as Peter goes, this is the beginning of Peter's sermon that we're talking about today, not the end of it. The mighty works of God is what has happened through the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Holy Spirit accomplished by Jesus Christ. They are proclaiming the mighty works of God. And so as they heard this again, they were amazed. They were all amazed, verse 12, and perplexed, saying to another, what does this mean? They're, they're trying to figure out, like, what do we make of this? What on earth is going on? Okay? We're not sure how this is happening. We're not sure why this is happening. What are we supposed to do? What do we make of this? There's a large group of people gathered together. Now, apparently, there are also some skeptics. There are also some scoffers who failed to pass science class or life experience class, wherever they lived, and suggested that intoxication increases one's proficiency in foreign language. That is exactly what they say. They saying one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. They are filled with new wine. They're intoxicated. That's what they're doing. And the new wine is also a jab. Because if you know anything about wine, the nicer and much more expensive wine, is it new or is it older? It's older, right? It's aged. New wine, sweet wine would have been, is newer wine. Okay, it's newer wine because the yeast hasn't time, had time to eat all the sugar to create the alcohol, the fermentation process. So the sweet wine is not this nice aged wine. You know what it is? It's the cheap stuff. What they're saying is, yes, the Galileans, you know, getting lit on their bush light, and they're, and they're, you know, this kind of pictures of these unsophisticated people with this drinking the cheap stuff, and here they are. Here's what it looks like. Okay, it's really kind of a jab at these folks, and that leads us to Peter's speech, but not before his correction. So Peter stands with the eleven, but critically not with the hundred and twenty. Okay. He is standing with the other 11 apostles, but he's not standing with everyone who received the Holy Spirit. It's the 12, and Peter stands with them. He lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you. Give ear to my word. So he calls for attention because he is about to explain and give some answers to all of their confusion. 
These people, he corrects, are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, which is 9 a.m. Okay, so apparently even in Galilee, no one started that early. And this was his demonstration that clearly this is not a result of drunkenness. This is something supernatural. This is a supernatural manifestation of God. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And again, the this does include the giving of the Holy Spirit. But they remember, they are this, the this that Peter says here is after all of these people proclaiming the mighty works of God in Christ. Okay? And that's important. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And what we get here is our second incredible apostolic hermeneutics lesson. We got one last time, last week. We're going to get our second apostolic hermeneutics lesson. Because what he is going to do is he is going to say that what this is, the Spirit in conjunction and the mighty works of God and all the rest of it, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And so much like last week, because it was worth it, I think, to flip back to the Psalms that Peter quoted in chapter 1 um, to, to see how Judas served as an exemplary fulfillment to get our kind of hands around that, I want you to keep your little Bible ribbon or your finger or whatever it is, and I want you to turn back with me to Joel chapter 2 so that we can see what Peter is actually doing with this quotation. Turn back with me in your copy of the Scripture to Joel chapter 2. And like I said, keep your finger or your ribbon or however you do it so we can flip back and forth and see some of these things. Our passage that Peter is quoting starts in verse 28. I'm sorry, well, it does start in verse 28, but it comes on the heels of a restoration passage. So if you look at Joel chapter 2, 27, you see... You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else and my people shall never again be put to shame. So we have a restoration passage. Then, verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Shall see visions. Now, I want you to see Peter's first move here because this is huge. Look at the first part of verse 28. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Turn back to Acts, flip back to Acts, and let's see how Peter says it in Acts chapter 2. Uh, by the way, quoting an extremely well known passage, everyone who was listening would have been aware. Joel is a standout passage in the Old Testament. Listen to what he says instead of, it shall come to pass afterward. In the last days, verse 17, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. In the last days. This is not an accidental word change. This isn't him quoting, you know, the Greek version of the Old Testament as opposed to the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. This is a very intentional part of how Joel is understanding the fulfillment and in one sense the application 
uh, of P Peter, excuse me, is understanding the fulfillment and application of Joel's prophecy. He is making it abundantly clear to his audience that they were now witnessing and they inhabited the last days, the last stretch of history, not something that merely came after some other event back in Joel. The last days have been climactically inaugurated. And in this season, the Holy Spirit, which was formerly given to certain people, you know, only at certain times, is going to fall on all kinds of people without distinction. All kinds of people, young people, old people, young men and women, they're all going to receive the Holy Spirit. Everyone in this new this age of the Spirit, you might say, this new covenant will receive the same spirit the apostles received. That doesn't mean they'll have the same authority they received, but everyone receives the same Holy Spirit. Men and women, young and old, will have, it says here, direct knowledge of God. They'll see visions. They'll dream dreams. Presumably, they will prophesy exactly like it says. And that, I think, is exactly what we see here, isn't it? Aren't they proclaiming the mighty works of God? That's exactly what they're doing. They're proclaiming the mighty works of God. Now, skip with me back to Joel. Actually, you know what? I'm sorry. Say with, let's read the first part of 18. So you have your young men shall see visions, your old men shall see dream dreams. And then the first part of 18. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Okay, now flip back over to Joel. Joel chapter 2, and look at verse 29. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. But it doesn't say anything about them prophesying. Peter adds that. Peter adds that to clarify that, that not only will the Holy Spirit be given in a way that crosses uh, gender lines and age lines, but even socioeconomic lines, People who would have no thought of having that kind of relationship with God, that kind of access to God, that kind of power. People who would never would have thought that are going to receive that. And they are going to prophesy. They are going to proclaim the good works of God. And Peter emphasizes this for good reasons here because you have Galileans and women who are prophesying. And who have been filled with the Spirit. So he emphasizes that in particular. We continue on in Joel 30 through 31. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, when we go back to Acts chapter 2, Peter quotes this almost verbatim. When we read this language of the, the blood and fire and vapor and smoke and the sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, uh, we, we're tempted to think something about the end of the world just happened, right? Isn't that what we're tempted to think? That this language is talking about something that hasn't happened yet. But that would be a very odd conclusion for Peter to be saying something, this is this, 
and then telling them something about something that actually hasn't even occurred yet. Wouldn't that be very odd? Here's what's happening. It hasn't happened yet. Doesn't seem to be a fit. Now, there is one view here that Peter goes ahead and quotes the whole thing out of Joel just for the sake of completeness. But really, the only, the, all that he needs in this moment is 17 and 18 and verse 21. He includes the rest of it, but the rest of it is really a future prophecy. Uh, he, again, he just includes it out of a principle of completeness. This is wholly unpersuasive for at least two reasons. The first, we saw last week that Peter is more than capable of picking out one clause from one verse in the middle of a psalm to make his point. Okay? And the second thing is, Joel actually doesn't finish quoting, uh, Peter does not actually finish quoting Joel 32, 2.32. He cuts that off mid-sentence. Okay? So it's just ridiculous to think that Peter was bound by some principle of completeness in what he cites from the Old Testament. No, he intentionally chose and articulated this passage, and he says, this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel to people who were standing in front of him. Okay? So, even so, there are kind of two ways to understand these, this, this language. The first understanding is a more or less literal fulfillment in the ministry of Jesus. Well, Jesus did signs and wonders. Okay? And if you recall, there was darkness uh, at the cross. And uh, you had, he, he ascended into heaven. That was a sign in, in heaven. And you had the tongues of fire. Okay, so they're saying, yeah, some of these things, that's what it's talking about. The challenge is it just doesn't account very well for all of it. Okay, the blood, the moon turning to blood, smoke. Uh, it's just, it's a little bit forced. I think the far better approach is to simply realize that this is the typical language of God's powerful intervention in redemptive history, particularly for judgment. Particularly for judgment. We see it multiple times in the Old Testament. Let me just give you two examples. The first is in Isaiah chapter 13. This is a judgment on Babylon. This is a past judgment. And Isaiah says in verses 9 and 10, Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Again, talking about judgment on Babylon. If you want to go back and look. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And we're like, oh, it's the end of the world. It's like, no, it's language to describe God's decisive intervention into redemptive history, particularly as it relates to judgment. But as it turns out, we actually don't have to leave either of our two authors this morning to see another example of that. So if you turn back with me to Joel, and you go further back in chapter 2, you'll see that the day of the Lord starts chapter 2, and that this is a, 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 a oracle of judgment against Zion. And I want you to see the language that is used in verse 2. This day is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Going down to verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. 
This is the language of God that God is using, talking about visiting in his people in judgment if they do not repent. And presumably, that is what happened. If you skip to verse 18, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Okay? And things turn around to all appearances. A couple different interpretations of that. But the, the main takeaway is this. The main takeaway is this. That Peter quoting Joel in this moment isn't talking about the end of the world. He's citing something that just happened to a group of people who are right there. He's not saying something that's irrelevant to them. Instead, what he is doing is he is saying that the first visitation of God in Christ, capped by this climactic sending of the Holy Spirit, is God extraordinarily and decisively entering into redemptive history for salvation from judgment. That's why he's using that language. And in one sense, through judgment, the judgment of his own son. Look at verse 32 in Joel chapter 2. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, and it's all capital letters, that's Yahweh, the name of the Lord, the covenant name, shall be saved. So skip back to the last time to Acts chapter 2. This is Peter's last move, but it's a move of context. He says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And everyone remembers that passage from Joel, the name of Yahweh. And then we're going to cheat and just look at next week's sermon just for one verse. Because who is, who is he talking about? Who does he apply the text to? Next verse, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and signs and wonders that God did through him in your midst. What he is saying is, this has come to pass through Jesus Christ, the wonder worker, the ministry of Christ. And he is the one who provides salvation that allows us to escape from judgment. In other words, here's this. Jesus literally was God's intrusion from heaven. Jesus was God climactically, pointedly, decisively entering into redemptive history. And that's why this language is used. That's why this language is used. To save from judgment. If there's any doubt that it's to say there's judgment in this context, flip back to Joel one more time. I know I lied by accident. I said it last time. Not last time. Okay? It shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But then this is why I had the rest of the passage read for our first scripture reading. For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem there shall be those who escape. Escape from what? Escape from what? Judgment. As the Lord has said, and among the survivors, that's remnant language. Survivors, those who remain, shall be those whom the Lord calls. For behold, Joel 3.1, In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on my behalf, there on behalf of my people and my heritage, Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. There is judgment coming. There is a day of final judgment coming. 
But ahead of that day, God, from Joel's perspective here, ahead of that day, God will act decisively and he will act powerfully in redemptive history such that there will be a way to be saved from the ultimate wrath of God. And these are the final days that have been inaugurated, brought about in the person and work of Christ, and capped by this climactic pouring out of the Holy Spirit promised centuries before their time. Because, the main point again, the climactic, not not the first, not the first, the climactic indication that the last days are upon us is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who enables and empowers God's plan of salvation. Now, when we talk about applying the book of Acts, or this passage in particular, I want to briefly provide some kind of worldview-shaping kind of application, which is different than, okay, here's what you can go do this afternoon. And I want to zoom in on two things in particular. The first is the last days in the Spirit, and the second is the filling of the Spirit in Luke and Acts, not Paul, which is going to be critical. Taking them in turn then, um, some of you aware that the Olympics are coming up. I love the Olympics. I love watching the Olympics. I love cheering for our athletes, and I yell and scream at the television. Uh, but here's the, the Olympics, like the World Cup, like the uh, World Series even, is an event. It's an event that happens every four years. Okay, at least the summer games. I guess the winter, I guess it's all, you know, every two years in one sense. But the summer games and the winter games both happen once every four years. But it is an event that itself is extended in time. And in fact, it's an event that is not only extended in time, but in the case of the Olympics, there is an opening ceremonies. There are the main games, events, and then there's a closing ceremonies. All of it can properly be called the Olympics. All of it can properly be called the Olympics. When you hear the last days as a theological term, this is not like a, well, we only have a few more weeks left. The last days means we inhabit this extended event as a result of what Jesus has done. We don't get like the ticker about how many, how many events are left in, in our version of the Olympics here before closing ceremonies. All right, We don't have that, but, but theologically that is what Christ has brought about. And what I would say is that the last days, the ministry of Christ culminating with the giving of the Holy Spirit fireworks and all, is the opening ceremonies, okay? From the beginning, and the opening ceremonies lasts a couple hours, if you watched it on TV before. From the beginning of John, from his baptism by John the Baptist to the giving of the Holy Spirit, opening ceremonies for the last days. Christ then ministers from heaven in the period we inhabit now ahead of what? Closing ceremonies, all of which is the last days. Now, what was not foreseen by the original audience was that it would be this extended event with an opening ceremonies and a closing ceremonies. They thought everything was just going to happen at once, all the restoration, all the giving of the Spirit, and all the rest of it. That was not the case. But we learn from Peter that not only are the last days upon us, but that the cosmic intervention language 
that will characterize the closing ceremonies also characterizes the opening ceremonies. Why is that? Well, because there's so much similarity between the two. And even if you watch the Olympics, you could name so many different similarities in terms of procedure and process and elements in the opening ceremonies and the closing ceremonies. Okay, and so similarly, there is this final day of the Lord that will literally have the fire and you read Peter and this, the, the elements are going to be dissolved as they burn and we await a new heaven and new earth and the, and the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. There will literally be cosmic intervention in that sense, but there are precursors to that that can be described with the same language, even though, because they, they, they are... Uh, because they are precursors to it. So for example, you remember in 1 John, John says, you've heard that Antichrist is coming, and he is coming. But I tell you, Antichrists have already come. Remember that? Antichrists have already come, even though they're, like, they're not like the big bad Antichrist that is coming. They can even still be described the same way. These are deceivers who uh, pretend godliness, but actually they oppose God. They don't believe what we've said. They look like it, though. They smell like it, but they're, but they're not legitimate. Similarly, you read 2 Thessalonians 2, the man of lawlessness. Here is the eschatological, the end time antichrist. So the precursors can be described with the same language as the one at the very end. And that is exactly what happened. So in this sense, just like in Isaiah 13, God's intervention in history ahead of the last, last day okay, is preceded by his interventions uh, before that. And they prefigure what will happen the last day. Uh, and, and there are similarities between the two, which is why Peter can understand Joel to be talking about the person and ministry of Jesus, uh, uh, that, 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 uh, that those are fulfilled by this prophecy of Joel, even as we await the climactic final day. So God's and to summarize then, so God's climactic intrusion of earth, capped by the Holy Spirit, fulfills the precursors to this final day of the Lord, and we are waiting for it, where judgment and salvation will be complete. Okay? For now, both wrath and salvation has come, but it is not complete. Salvation has come. So has wrath. Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being poured out. Because the kingdom comes already not yet, so do the elements of the kingdom. And so we wait. We wait for the closing ceremonies and we trust God. So I hope that's helpful understanding how the last days work and when in kind of the economy of salvation and how to think about that. The last thing that I want to talk about here is the filling of the Spirit in Luke and Acts. And we're going to see many examples of this. So I thought, hey, you know what? This is the time to talk about this distinction. We should be very careful about reading Paul's theology of the Holy Spirit back into Luke and Acts. Most of us, when we think of the Holy Spirit, we're thinking about Paul's theology. We're thinking about this static, permanent endowment that we have that we call being indwelled by the Holy Spirit that is the sign and seal of our redemption that guarantees the perseverance of the saints and all the rest. And that is so wonderful and all of that is so true. It is also true that that is not what Luke is particularly concerned about when he talks about being filled with the Spirit, which is probably a little bit of a shock to you, perhaps. Maybe that's new for you. Luke talks about the filling of the Holy Spirit in two different ways, neither of which are just a static endowment that somebody 
has as a Christian. And by the way, remember, he was a traveling companion of Paul, so Paul was thumbs up on this, okay? And Paul's going to use different language to describe the same thing. But, but don't take my word for it. Remember, we never do that here. The first sense that he uses filled with the Spirit is, is being filled with the Spirit in a manner accompanied by powerful, punctuated expressions of divine operation or enablement. Being filled with the Spirit in a manner accompanied by powerful, punctuated expressions of divine operation or enablement. The second is being full of the Spirit in the sense of being someone whose thoughts, desires, and focus are directed toward and mastered by the Holy Spirit. Now again, I said we're not going to take my word for it. I've given you citations here, and I'm going to read them for you so you can hear what I'm saying. Let's take the first kind first. A pre-Pentecost example of this. John the Baptist's father in Luke 167, Zechariah. After his mouth was open, because you know he was he, he was rendered mute for a while. His father Zechariah was, and we get this phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And we get this beautiful piece of prophecy. We're not made to think that Zechariah just went around doing that every day. He was filled with the Spirit and he prophesied. Acts chapter 2 verse 4 we covered today. They were filled with the Spirit and they began speaking in tongues and presumably prophesying. Acts 4, 8, Peter and John are before the council and listen to the question they get asked. By what power or by what name did you do this? And then verse 8, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, and he gives this amazing condensed gospel speech and incredible boldness. Incredible boldness. In Acts chapter 9, Paul regains his sight after being filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet, even after being filled with the Holy Spirit, we read in Acts 13, 9, that before opposing this powerful magician... This wicked magician, in Acts 13.9, Paul is again filled with the Holy Spirit before he boldly rebukes this person. So that is the first kind of being filled with the Spirit that Luke has in uh, Luke and Acts. This idea that being filled with the Spirit in a way that is accompanied by powerful, punctuated expressions of divine operation or enablement. The second kind is a kind of spiritual mindedness, you might say, and Paul's word for it is someone who is walking in the Spirit, okay? So someone who is keeping in step, you might say, with the Spirit, and this is a different Greek word. This is a different Greek word. What are some examples of this? Well, again, another pre-Pentecost example from Luke, Luke 4.1, talking about Jesus, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. In other words, he was followed, he was following and being mastered by the Holy Spirit of God. In Acts chapter 6, we're going to see that there arises some practical problems about the Hellenistic widows getting overlooked in the distribution of the food, and they come to the apostles, and the apostles say, listen, it's not right that we should stop teaching in order to do this, and you kind of have this proto-deacon passage, and uh, here's what they say, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, these men have good reputations, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint for this duty, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who have good reputations, 
Say, so you see this moral quality, this spiritual quality that these people's minds and their hearts are mastered by the Spirit. They are spiritual in that sense. In Acts chapter 7, the stoning of Stephen, he gives his speech before he is stoned, and the people are grinding their teeth, and they're threatening him, but he's not intimidated at all because he is heavenly-minded. It says, Acts 7.13, full of the Holy Spirit, instead of being scared, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. In Acts 11.24, Barnabas is described as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Okay? Two different words. One's a different Greek construction. They are used differently. One is punctuated empowerment for that it results in something that is divinely enabled. And then you have something, uh, well, divinely enabled. That is something miraculous, something that is particularly bold. And then you have this kind of uh, 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 sanctified kind of spirit-mindedness. Galatians 6.1, those of you who are spiritual should restore him gently, the person who's a transgressor. That's what that's Paul's version of this. People who are mastered by the Spirit. So I'm filled with the Spirit on particular occasions for particular reasons. I'm someone who is full of the Spirit in terms of my thoughts and my desires are aligned with the Holy Spirit. Now, I wanted to point out this distinction, Luke's usage, for two reasons. It guards us from two errors. The first is the Pentecostal error of thinking that those who live Spirit-filled lives will necessarily speak in tongues. Not only does Luke's dual usage uh, 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 mitigate against that claim, but even the first kind of where the Holy Spirit comes in a particularly powerful, punctuated way, that's not even accompanied by the Holy uh, speaking in tongues in Acts. As you just heard, it can be accompanied by speaking the mighty works of God boldly. And that's exactly what we'll see. That's the first error. It guards us against the Pentecostal error of thinking that spirit-filled people necessarily speak in tongues or uh, do miracles or even prophesy. The second error uh, is thinking that because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and are temples of God, it's therefore inappropriate to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is one of your like theology bros online objections. Why are people praying that they'd be filled with the Spirit if we're all if the Spirit indwells us? Well, because that's what we see here. Because we have a richer vocabulary. Luke provides us more contour for the operation of the Spirit. We have at least three ways to think about the Spirit. One is this permanent endowment of the Scripture that intercedes with word, you know, when we don't even have words to pray. Here it is, the Spirit's interceding, and He's a down, He's the down payment, the, the seal of our inheritance. Yes, that's we have that. But we also have these two as well. Okay, Luke paints a picture of the Spirit very powerfully filling people in particular circumstances, particularly as they speak of the work of God in Christ. And he's got a picture of people who are filled up with, literally, who are full of the Spirit because they are spiritually minded. They're in submission to God's will and walking in the Spirit. And because of this, not only is it permissible to pray for that, but we should what, do you, what else do you want to be full of? I mean, I could think of a couple things that you don't want to be full of. Okay? Full of the Spirit. Don't you want to be people who are full of the Spirit? I do. And so, yes, it is true. Theologically, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And should we want to be people who are filled with the Spirit and live lives full of the Spirit? Yes. And those two things aren't mutually exclusive. They go together just fine. They go together just fine. 
And so as we close in prayer and we think about this going out this week, let's, let's think about that hope and that promise that God can empower people in particular circumstances to do extraordinary things in his name and that we should aspire to be people who keep in step with the Spirit, are mastered by the Spirit as we fight the desires of the flesh. Let's pray, please. God, we are thankful that you have sent the Holy Spirit in fulfillment of prophecy, that you have split space-time by divine presence, that you have come to work in us in a way that, in, in one sense, we can't even truly grasp, but we can stand in awe over. And so, Lord, my prayer is for every single person in this room that they would say, yes, fill me with your Holy Spirit even as you have put your Spirit in me. Help me to be someone who is spiritually minded. Would we not be a church who relegates the Holy Spirit and His work to either bad theology or just a piece of static theology, but that something that is enabling and something that is powerful. Lord, we pray that you would honor this prayer in our lives. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen.